So Dr. Susan Guzman is a clinical psychologist just specializing in diabetes care. In 2003, Dr. Guzman co-founded the Behavioral Diabetes Institute, the first nonprofit organization devoted to the emotional and behavioral aspects of living with diabetes. And she currently serves as their director of clinical education. Dr. Guzman has developed three NIH-funded studies around diabetes distress group interventions. She's passionate about helping to change the conversations in diabetes away from shame, blame, and judgment to those based on facts, empathy, and engagement, and has served on the panel of the International Consensus to End Diabetes Stigma. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Guzman. Thank you for coming to hear a topic that doesn't sound that sexy. I'll see if I can make it a little interesting for you. Um, I um, am very pleased to be here with all of you. And it, it turned out to not be snowing, so that's all I was hoping for. Um, I'm originally from Buffalo, but I have been in San Diego for so long that that's just a bad memory. <laughs> um, I uh, got started in diabetes on accident, so I, I understand there's some uh, residents here. and. Uh, I did my postdoc in an inner city hospital in San Diego and um, was doing psyche evals in the emergency room. And I had my um, degree in clinical psychology with an emphasis in health psych. So that's really, I wanted to be on the medical units. And uh, somebody from the diabetes teaching team said, we'd really like someone from behavioral health to start rounding with us on all the diabetes related admissions. So I started, you know, my introduction to diabetes was to this to the scary side of, of the disease. So people who were either in DKA or facing an amputation or had open heart surgery or something like that. And uh, like all of you know, you know, you kind of circle around the person. And um, I learned some of the things that I learned back then, which was in 1998, I'm still trying to address today. And one of the main things I heard is, you know, when everybody would leave the room, I would just pull up a chair and say, you know, how are you? You know, what's this, what's this been like for you? And how did you end up here? And um, what I heard shocked me in some ways. Um, it wouldn't shock me now, but um, at the time I was thinking, you know, diabetes is a, is a very demanding disease. I was expecting to hear, you know, more resources to, to help people with diabetes. And one of the things I heard over and over and over again is, you know, Susan, I've had diabetes for 10, 20, 50 years. And no one's ever asked me that. How are you doing? I, I thought, what the heck are we doing wrong here in San Diego? And now I realize it's something we do, you know, not well all, all around the world. Um, and the other thing I heard was a lot of unidentified, unaddressed obstacles, and many of them um, the emotional behavioral aspects of living with diabetes. And that's why I'm going to try and hope to help you see a little differently today. So we'll talk about the emotional aspects of diabetes. Uh, I'll tell you what diabetes distress is and how that relates to clinical outcomes. And I, I hope to challenge your thinking on motivational issues in diabetes and how it impacts diabetes self-management. And then hopefully give you some practical input about how you can reduce distress, promote engagement, and improve, improve outcomes. And, and hopefully we'll have enough time to have some Q&A at the end. So the last time there was a large epidemiological study done, um, they do it about every, you know, seven or eight years. They they um, they do this huge study that that looks at outcomes for people with diabetes. There's people. It's kind of folds together people of all ages with people with type one and type two diabetes. So obviously this is predominantly people with type two diabetes. But we wanted to just get an assessment of how are we doing, and so when you look at the when we're talking about well-managed diabetes, we're typically thinking about A1C blood pressure and LDL cholesterol. And when you look at individual outcomes, it doesn't look like, well, it's not, I mean, it's not great, but it's not as bad as you may have thought it was. But, you know, when we think about reaching treatment targets, <clears throat> excuse me, and having diabetes in a safe place, <clears throat> we're really looking for all three things to be at treatment targets in addition to not smoking. And you can see 23%. When I first started pre presenting uh, this data slide, um, you know, back around 2000, it was 
it was around 12%. So, I mean, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. But just to give you an idea of the scope of the problem, because, you know, we have all these amazing technologies to monitor blood glucose. We have new medications that are really powerful. And yet our treatment targets are not really moving um, when we when we look at how we're doing, you know, nationally or even around the world. And so just the three operating principles that we um, always use at the BDI when we, we give talks for healthcare professionals. The first thing to know is that living with diabetes can be tough and people are working towards a balance of goals where they're trying to have the best blood glucose and blood pressure, LDL cholesterol too. Um, they're with as few dangerous or scary lows as possible while also having a life. And people are always making that sort of juggling act. And I know you can't see anything on this slide, but the, that, that's on purpose because it, this is a really cool study that they did where they, uh, it's a qualitative study where they um, interviewed people with, with um, chronic, chronic diseases. Many of them had diabetes, but um, also other chronic diseases. And this just gives you a picture of what the emotional burden is when you're when you live with a chronic disease and so just to zoom into this the that top um pink um line that that one line and that big burden um picture is just the management of medications and a lot of what people have to juggle when they have chronic diseases you can't really see and the typical reasons why we think diabetes is are tough is tough is are wrong. So here are the top five complaints about uh, patients with diabetes from um, healthcare professionals. Patients say they want to change, but they're not really willing to make necessary changes. They're not honest. They only tell me what I want to hear. They don't listen to my advice. Diabetes is not a priority. They're in denial. They don't care. They're unmotivated and they don't take responsibility for self-management. And when we think about the people with diabetes in particular that struggle to, to um, make behavior changes and have been labeled as having poor adherence, this is what the phys physicians had endorsed it as strong. Um, they lack discipline. They have poor willpower. They're not scared enough. And that one really bothers me. They're not smart enough. And this is a problem because it leads to tactics that don't work. If you think people lack willpower, well, then you're going to encourage them to try harder. If you think they're not scared enough, well, you'll say, you know, you could end up blind or on dialysis if you don't make these changes. I better, if you're not scared enough, I better scare you. Um, and if you think perhaps they're not bright enough, uh, then maybe I should just tell you what to do so that you don't have to think about it. You should, you should eat healthier, for example. And these don't work because they're based on the false premise that people who don't follow treatment recommendations are unmotivated, lack willpower, not scared enough. And unfortunately, what happens is it leads to the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. People become more frustrated and disengaged with diabetes. They may become immobilized with fear. They may feel hopeless about ever achieving goals. And they're not likely to come back for their follow-up appointments. And the third one is, is I, I know maybe not how you would, it, this comes from the world of motivational interviewing, but no one, almost no one, is unmotivated to live a long and healthy life. We would all rather be well. And I would argue healthcare professionals are not unmotivated either. So um, in a survey of 200 primary care physicians, you can see that, you know, most uh, doctors struggle with getting enough sleep, exercise, have excess weight or obesity, and they say that a key barrier to making healthier food selections is, are their job demands. And this is what we call the attribution bias. So when we're thinking about our own behavior, we often, you know, we know the good reasons that why we don't do things. And so we think about situational factors to explain it. But when I think about you, <laughs> then when I'm thinking about your behavior, I'm thinking it's more characterological, like you're maybe unmotivated or lazy or not that interested in your, your own self-care. So what's so hard about diabetes anyway? One of my colleagues said in a standard diabetes education class 
and she counted the number of behaviors the diabetes care and education specialist was recommending that people change. So, you know, this is like the four to six hour class, and it's things like learning how to count your carbohydrates, limiting sweets and saturated saturated fats, paying attention to your sodium, check your feet. If you're on if you're on an injectable, make sure that you're, you know, doing proper injection technique and rotating your sights and um, take your medication on time. If you're smoking, stop and the list went on and on and she quit counting at 150 separate behaviors. And the more we learn, the more we add on that list. And we often don't hand that list to people in order of priority priority for bang for your buck. So where, you know, like if you take your medication as prescribed, that's going to have a huge impact. Moving your body is going to have a big impact. You're drinking more water, while that might be helpful, it may also be number 150. So um, it's overwhelming to people. And then the human element of it is that the, the best outcome if you do that 150 uh, task job, which is the full time job that people didn't want and can't quit, if you do that job really, really well, the best outcome is nothing happens. Now, nothing happening is wonderful, right? That's the goal of diabetes management. But when we're talking about human behavior, if you all did your full time job for the outcome of nothing, no one would do it. So it's something to remember when we're when we're we're thinking about um, the tasks of diabetes management and why people may not engage with them. And then one thing we hear often about for people, especially once they're on insulin, is the need for constant decision making, that you're always having to think about what's next, where am I now, did I bring all my stuff? Um, the need for constant decision making, that 24-7, 365 nature of having to think about, about diabetes with no real vacations. People obviously take breaks from their diabetes management, um, but not for any length of time or, you know, it's they get into trouble. So um, that sense of that, it's always there. And, and then it's a moving target. So for people, uh, not just with type two diabetes, but, you know, as people age, your needs change. So even people with type one experience this as well. The sense that diabetes is a moving target that, you know, just when you feel like I got it dialed in, something changes or my health care changes or my doctor changes or something changes. And then I have to make an, a, an adjustment. And um, it leaves people feeling like their efforts are really never really good enough. Um, even when people like work super hard and maybe reach that magical um, A1C of seven, uh, below 7%, a lot of times then the healthcare professional will say what they can still do to, you know, adjust or tighten it up. And they're like, geez, I, I thought like fireworks should go off and I still got told what I basically I'm still not doing good enough. And then there's elements of diabetes itself that make it challenging. So when you think about what drives people often to get care, it's pain. And the things that make diabetes dangerous aren't particularly painful. What does an elevated blood pressure feel like? And even and even elevated blood glucose, I, I mean, it is amazing to me um, how people can get used to very remarkably high blood glucose levels. It becomes their, you know, their normal. Um, and so when things don't hurt, it doesn't really pull for doing much about it. And then, so what does it feel like when you treat it? So you have, if you have hypertension and you get on a medication, what do you notice when it's now at target? You know, nothing. So um, a lot of times it's about, you know, the elements of diabetes itself are kind of a setup for not wanting to pull for action. And again, there's no finish line. Um, just because, you know, you get you reach treatment targets, now the effort is to keep them there. Um, and, and really what I'm trying to help all of you see is that another big part that people will talk about often is that almost nobody, unless you have diabetes yourself, appreciates how much how much work is involved regardless of your outcomes. And difficult feelings are really common. In, in a study of 409 people with type 1, you can see these were one of the, the, the most commonly reported diabetes-related distress items. Um, feeling discouraged when you see numbers that you can't explain. Worried that you're going to end up with serious complications no matter how hard you try. And the last one, feeling that no matter what I do, it's never good enough. I hear that all the time. 
And for people with type 2 diabetes, the numbers are just as high, but the elements of what stresses them out is different. Feeling like they're failing. Now, this is not just saying that um, I'm not following uh, my meal plan as closely as I should. It's saying that bothers them. So it's like not doing the job and, and feeling badly about it. So feeling like they're failing. Uh, meal plan exercise and then really showing up in their own sense of motivation. And this is what we call diabetes distress. So diabetes distress is really sort of a, an umbrella category that captures all of the worries, concerns, fears, and threats that go with a demanding chronic disease like diabetes. Um, and what we know is that the more diabetes distress people report, the more likely they are to have challenges with diabetes management and it really shows up in glycemic outcomes. Why is that? And if you think about that, especially that element of powerlessness that diabetes distress captures, it really makes sense. So if you feel like you can't, you're powerless to keep blood glucose in range, why would you try? If you feel like you can never lose weight and keep it off, why would you engage with a new treatment recommendation? If you're tired of being told you're not doing well with your diabetes, why go back to be told that again? I think you'll never be safe from a high or a low. Why take the right amount of medication? If you feel like your efforts are never good, good enough anyway, why try something new? So you can see why these are these are items from diabetes distress. So you can see why that shows up in outcomes. If it's it is a what really captures it is that idea that I don't feel like what I do matters. And we know that this is remarkably common. Um, Previous statistics were around 4 in 10, but we we changed how we measure it so that it wasn't a, a basically a summary of all the different source scales or an, an average of all the different source scales. And the new way we're measuring it is showing that it's a lot higher than we previously thought. That adults with type 1 diabetes, 55 to 77%. Adults with type 2, 61%. And it doesn't disappear on its own. When people develop a relationship with diabetes, it's kind of how they do it. And without intervention, um, people tend to uh, screen positive in the same way over time. So now what? So if no one's unmotivated, what's the, what's the problem? So I'm really gonna, this is like the most important slide that I'm gonna show you because this is how I'm gonna encourage you to think about when, just like uh, when you're entering the room with someone and and you know before you get a chance to look at them and you're just reviewing their outcomes and you're seeing that maybe they don't take their medication and they have a very elevated a1c and um you know they're facing a very scary complication think about what are this is this person's obstacles versus how they see the benefit so and with any of the uh, treatment recommendations say you know you want the person to stop smoking what are their personal obstacles versus what are their, what's their understanding of the benefits. And with diabetes, there are a lot of obstacles. So here's some of them. A lack of knowledge or skill. If you don't know what carbohydrate is, it's pretty hard to count it. Um, a lot of people with type 2 diabetes in particular don't really understand the importance of medication in the management of diabetes. We focus so much on food that we really neglect to make medication management a key part of the message and so oftentimes people develop this idea that being on medication means that you're failing at um, other aspects of diabetes management. Um, we again we all over focus too on uh, blood glucose management when the role of diabetes and even for people with type 1 diabetes now that we're paying attention to hypertension and LDL cholesterol for all people with diabetes that's how we're seeing um, significant improvement in outcomes. So it's not just about blood glucose. Uh, medication side effects, you know, hypoglycemia is pretty punishing and it doesn't take very many experiences with hypoglycemia before people don't want to take enough or any of their medications. Harmful health beliefs, um, there's a lot of people who have had really scary stuff happen in their family from diabetes and it develops this um, this belief that diabetes is a death sentence, fatalism, and um, and that really actually, you think that that would be engaging for people, but when it, it pushes people away, when you think that diabetes is a death sentence, you think, well, I guess I'll enjoy my life because I'm gonna die from this thing anyway. Um, medication, a lot of times people think um, being 
you know, needing changes or additions to their medication means that they're sicker. Um, and there's a lot of fear around insulin. Many people have unachievable goals, like they need to exercise every day or, you know, then I can't do that, so I not at all or eat perfectly. Um, a lot of problems between um, what people with diabetes or patient communication uh, are willing to tell their healthcare professional, and it can lead to uh, a lot of frustration for from healthcare professionals and the lack of trust um, from the people with diabetes that they serve. A few more <laughs> environmental barriers, uh, financial time, health insurance. Um, or social support when the family is not diabetes is, is not diabetes knowledgeable they may not be supportive of their efforts to make changes especially around meal planning ineffective coping styles um, a lot of times we talk about stress eating i know we all have a tendency to do that i wish celery was one of those things that stress eating pulled for but it's not usually uh, um, and a lot of times it's it sounds funny but like when people um, have a doctor that they really want to please uh, they'll they'll say, well, I didn't reach my targets for fill in the blank, so I'm going to postpone my appointment so that I'm going to really step it up this next month. And what happens is that healthcare professional avoidance because they don't want this, they don't want you all to see that they're failing. And, and we already talked about the elements of diabetes that that don't hurt, so they don't really pull for engagement. Cultural issues that con that conflict. Um, of, there's a, a lot of in, in San Diego, we have a lot of people from Mexico and we have a, a very large Asian community and they talk about how hard it is um, to have like a serving size of rice is not like a quarter cup, <laughs> you know, and a lot of the foods that are culturally important are really hard when you have diabetes um, and body weight ideals can vary by culture um, and that can be a problem when you have diabetes. I had a patient who had type 2 diabetes she was young in her early 30s and she was single and she was really working hard to try and lose some weight and her mom kept telling her how she was going to be unattractive um, to any potential uh, suitor and so um, she found that very discouraging so she stopped actually trying to tell her mom any of the healthy behaviors she was trying to do um, social determinants of health we, i feel like we got to hear a lot more about how important they are um, economic stability, access to care, education, access, and quality really matter with, with diabetes. Um, it's one of the reasons I have a hard time using the word lifestyle when we're talking about, you know, health behaviors, because, you know, poverty is not a lifestyle. You know, if you can't afford your medicine or, you know, healthy uh, fruits and vegetables, then that's not really a lifestyle choice. That's because you don't have access. I chose to introduce you to Megan because she was not someone that I worked with, but she has a very compelling story. Um, Megan is somebody I interviewed and she, her what she told me was so rich, it makes the point of everything that I'm hoping that you take away from, from this um, talk today. Megan uh, is 38 years old and she has had type 1 diabetes for 12 years and she's in recovery, in recovery from insulin omission, which is also known as diabolemia for weight loss for three years. That's when people with uh, type one diabetes don't take their insulin in an effort to uh, lose weight. And the problem is it's very addictive because it works. And what what often young women, what but men too, but mostly young women, what they trade is their eyes and their kidneys and their hearts. And, um, and people with uh, insulin omission for weight loss end up with complications at very, very young ages. Um, and Megan said that, you know, she was overweight beginning as a child. Um, she says, I, I, I was, I've always was a kind of a chubby kid. And she said, long before I had diabetes, I had developed the idea that my self-worth was tied to my weight. And at age 26, she was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And when she didn't respond to oral agents, she to was told, if you ate right and took your medications as directed, this would not be a problem. And she said, I was taking those medications, but they didn't believe me. And so for that first year and a half, her, her weight continued to drop and her A1C remained high. And after one year, she was diagnosed with a 
latent autoimmune di diabetes in adulthood or type 1 diabetes. And she said, and that was when she was started on insulin. And she said, by then, I was already scared of it. Because what happens is, you know, in that kind of story, um, people get threatened with insulin as if that's like to be avoided at all costs. Like if you take your medication, you won't have to be on insulin. And she, she said, so I was already afraid of it. Um, and she said, I quickly saw that more insulin increased my weight and less insulin meant more weight loss. So then unfortunately that was a tool that she had that didn't, didn't serve her. She said, now again, thinking in, in, in that obstacles benefits when I, when I read this to you, the weight loss was more rewarding and outweighed the consequences of an elevated A1C, which was 13%. I experienced less judgment from having less weight. I loved that I fit in, she told me, in my clothes, my social groups, and society. And she says, I really felt confident in myself. And during this time, I only went to doctors to treat problems. I got to my goal weight when I actually went into DKA. And I ended up in the ICU. And she said, in the ICU, this is what happened. She said, they told me repeatedly that I was uncontrolled and non-compliant and that I just needed to do it. And they never addressed the real problem. What I heard from this is, this is your problem. It's not a my problem or an our problem. So come back when you get yourself together. And I didn't know how to address it on my own. And I heard this from multiple providers in different special specialties in different healthcare systems and even in different states. Her husband is in the military. So again, the picture that I want you to think of when you're you're talking to someone is what are the obstacles what are their understanding of the benefits so she had a lot of obstacles weight gain um, was in, was a big one for her because her self-worth was tied to her appearance she also had depression and anxiety and very elevated diabetes distress and the benefits for her was she was keeping them like just to have less infections and to feel better so when we're set, when we're thinking about making a change, at first I think it's really important that we set the stage right, and we have to create a safe, collaborative, non-judgmental, and welcoming environment for people to tell you the truth. And so, really, to to uh, make it easy for them to tell you what they're doing and not doing, um, and know that you're that in general, diabetes messaging can be really harmful. Um, and it. This is something that I'm very engaged in in the diabetes community to try and really think about the words that we use when we're talking about diabetes and with people with diabetes. Um, they, this was a survey study that was done for people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, just asking them what words negatively affect you. And you can see the words there that are that made them feel judged, like non-compliant or uncontrolled, fear, anxiety, talking about threatening complications, labels or assumptions, diabetic or all people with diabetes are fat or suffer, oversimplifications like you just need to lose weight or at least it's not, misunderstanding or misinformation like cure or reverse or the bad kind or you're fine. And then of course then there's nonverbal stuff that can communicate um, no eye contact or an accusatory tone. And we recently published, uh, this is I know this is a lot, but I'll just tell you that, that you could end up blinder on dialysis. We asked people to, this is called a semantic differential, where people have the opportunity to say, you know, how much they feel one direction or the other um, when they hear these words. And um, the idea is when somebody's told you could end up blinder on dialysis, that's an effort from the healthcare professional to motivate the person to engage with diabetes. Um, and so we asked people, you know, does that make you feel motivated? And and instead of feeling motivated, if you look at the lower um, left-hand uh, row there, motivated, you can see very few people felt motivated by that. And instead, what they reported was feeling blamed. If you look at the right-hand side, 85% with people with type 1 diabetes, 73 with type 2. And, and again, when we're talking about Engaging with care, the last thing we want people to feel is hopeless because that means they feel like their efforts don't matter. There's no hope. And you can see hopelessness was very, very high. And uncontrolled, now I, I'll just tell you right now, this follows people with diabetes around all the time. It ends up in your EHR 
and every new um, practitioner the person sees, they, they they're greeted with the fact that this person's uncontrolled. And no adult wants to be labeled uncontrolled, even if it's not really labeling them, it's labeling their diabetes or their blood pressure. Um, and so you can see again, that's that people are told they're uncontrolled as a way often to motivate them. And you can see that really didn't hit the mark. And, and again, look at hopelessness, 80%, 69%, and misunderstood and blamed. And if healthcare professionals stopped using these words, people said they would feel respected, listened to, and that healthcare professionals really care. I thought this one quote from the study really captured it. They said, I would have more faith in my healthcare professionals if they didn't use words that I think they convey a lack of information, sensitivity, or understanding of my experience. So tipping the scale for success, we want to shrink those obstacles and grow those benefits. We want, we want people, we want to be an obstacle remover and help people really appreciate that their efforts are worth the work. So three strategies. Uh, one is to meet the person where they are. The second one is to provide evidence-based hope to give reason to, for people to bother, and then working with them to collaborate on what I'll explain to you, a healthy, good enough goal and a plan for action. And this comes from, these three things come from the literature on, on empathy, and powerfulness and trust and on uh, collaboration. They're, those are three things that have shown repeatedly to really matter when it comes to making, uh, especially things like taking medication or some of the recommendations that really come from um, physicians. So meet the person where they are is the whole, the whole point of these is to help people feel understood and help them build a sense of trust. And I'm going to really encourage you to ask how people are doing. Um, that we don't want that to then what decades old behavior of I've never been asked how I'm doing to, to be the people in your care. How are you doing? Validate their experience. I can understand why you'd feel that way. Empathize with tough feelings. That sounds really scary or that sounds really hard. Um, and start hearing when you're hearing their story the obstacles and versus the benefits. I, I like to think of it as, as this question, what are the good reasons the person's there? What they're meaning wherever they are, like elevated A1C or in the hospital or whatever, what are the good reasons? Um, diabetes distress scales um, are a good place to start a conversation. Um, maybe not so much for those of you who are working in a hospital setting, but in an outpatient setting, there's opportunities to have more focused conversations about what's hard for people. The second thing and is it's actually, I can't tell you how powerful this is, um, to provide some evidence-based hope. And, and this large study that was done for people around the world, they had 29 countries involved in this study and they asked people who were, and they're newly diagnosed with type two diabetes, what, you know, what happened in your clinical encounter when you were diagnosed and these two um, phrases um, were shown to be very impactful. Um, they were called, they're called encouraging comments, but it gives, again, it showed up in um, self-management behaviors, um, including eating and um, medication management and also quality of life. With some care and effort, you can live a long and healthy life with diabetes. You can't say that enough to people with diabetes because they get a lot of the other messaging and a lot can be done to manage diabetes. Sounds simple enough, but they don't hear it enough. Um, because we know that hopelessness and diabetes is very common. Um, that item, I will end up with serious long-term complications no matter what I do. You can see it's, it's a big problem for people with both type one diabetes and type two diabetes. This, this, is a, a, this is something I see all the time from the American Diabetes Association. Why do people, why are people so hopeless about complications if, if they're not being hammered um, from their, their primary care doctors or their, their diabetes team, they're hearing it just out in public. Um, diabetes is a leading cause of kidney failure and blindness. So just an update on, so you, you know that I'm not just telling people that just to have hope for no good reasons, because we call it evidence-based hope. So the, and these next two slides I show in uh, all of my type 1 diabetes distress programs and people say after those two slides they don't really need the program anymore. 
That's how powerful it is. Um, so this slide here, this is what people go, yeah, yeah, this is what I already know. You know, look at the, the percentage of, uh, of people experiencing severe vision loss and amputation and, um, and, and nephropathy. Except there's one really important thing about this slide. What is it? 1978. And so now, uh, this is what we see. I, I happen to be, this is a, the follow-up to the DIVES, um, the DCCT, um, which showed that, you know, A1C actually mattered in, in preventing complications or, or postponing them anyway. And um, so this is the 30-year follow-up for people that participated in that study. And I was in the room at the, at, at the American Diabetes Association scientific sessions when they presented this slide and people went, huh? because that's not what we think of when we think of diabetes. This is what we think. And so people have not heard this good news. You can live a long and healthy life with diabetes. With some care and effort, you can live a long and healthy life. And what about for people with type 2 diabetes? This is a really cool study. Um, they followed um, people. This was not done in the US. Um, like 250,000 people over a period of five years with type 2 diabetes. And they looked at all kinds of outcomes, heart attacks, mortality, stroke. Um, and this, what I'm going to show you is uh, almost identical for those three important outcomes, mortality, um, heart attacks, and stroke. Um, so in people who don't have type 2 diabetes, that's their, the risk. Um, for people with diabetes, that was the risk. But there's an important um, qualifier, and that's this. They had five risks, so five risks meaning elevated A1C, blood pressure, LDL cholesterol, they were a smoker, and they had um, microalbumin. And when you look at uh, type 2 diabetes with all of those risk factors managed, you can see the outcome. It was basically statistically no different. You can live a long and healthy life with diabetes with, with good care and effort. Um, so then the, the third thing is to collaborate on what we call a healthy good enough goal. Healthy good enough means we, it, perfectionism for people with diabetes is a big problem because it, 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 it pulls for all or nothing thinking because you can't be perfect for more than moments at a time. And you know, with the, such a complicated disease, um, it gets very discouraging if your goal is perfect. So what we encourage is a healthy good enough and that is ambitious but it's also realistic and it's personalized. It allows for mistakes and experiments and it's forward looking. So, you know, where people go, oh, well, I'm doomed. I've already, you know, I've had all these years where I didn't engage with my diabetes and we, we ask them to think about what now. So let's work together to come up with a plan for you that you feel like you can really do. Collaboration, that one sentence there, let's work together to come up with a plan that you feel like you can really do. That one sentence really matters to people with diabetes. What's your next step? Think about being an obstacle remover. So what Megan did, she worked with her endo. She had an amazing endocrinologist that actually sent her texts with weekly adjustments to her insulin that slowly bring down her A1C so she didn't have that weight gain. Uh, she had to do some pretty intensive mental health treatment. She worked with a psychologist and an, an intensive outpatient program on eating disorders to under to address the underlying thinking. She said I had to address the lie behind it that all or nothing thinking again is very dangerous for me. I had to work on more mindful and wholesome eating behaviors. So again, instead of healthy, mindful and wholesome. Um, she worked with uh, a psychiatrist to treat her underlying depression and she actually had a very supportive family that was engaged in, in her treatment plan. So in over a year's time, her A1C went from 13% to six and she shot for six because she wanted to get pregnant. So the benefit, all of a sudden, the benefits became maybe pregnancy is actually an option for me now. And she had a, um, a, a little boy and she said, I was a good home for him. It really touched me the way she put that. I was a good home for him. So the key messages is there are a lot of obstacles that people with diabetes face every day. Just be aware of that because you always, you can't see them when you're sitting in front of somebody. Um, tough thoughts and feelings are very common and can lead to hopelessness about ever reaching treatment targets. And the healthcare professional messages of validation and empathy can help help the person trust you as a, a partner in their care. 
And, and some message of evidence-based hope can help people see that their efforts actually can matter, that they can make a positive difference and work on some healthy, good enough goal to help the person gain a perspective that diabetes management is worth it and achievable. Um, if, if you're interested in learning more about diabetes distress, our website, we have lots of um, healthcare professional videos that are brief, like 15 to 20 minutes on a whole variety of topics, including like medication taking and um, helping people make behavior changes and dealing with hypoglycemia and things like that. And diabetesdistress.org has an, an actual, people can pull it up on their phones and take it and score it automatically and gives you feedback or gives the person with diabetes feedback. Um, I always put, I have to put in my talks now because I was part of the international consensus to end diabetes stigma in, and learning more about that ndiabetesstigma.org. And that's my contact information. I'm eager to, to, to hear from all of you, your questions, cases, reactions, <laughs> Any questions? That was wonderful. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was really wonderful. Um, so I've got a subset of patients with type 1 who uh, really like to keep their A1C low. Um, and they don't like the feeling of having high sugars, and I worry about their low sugars, I worry about hypoglycemia unawareness, mm -hmm. um, and I don't feel like I've been very successful in allowing them or giving them the space to relax their A1C goal, to be comfortable with, with slightly higher A1C. And I realized here in the talk that I end up using scare tactics, you know, mm -hmm. saying, well, I'm just worried because all endocrinologists have patients who've had, you know, brain damage or a mm -hmm. car accident because of a low sugar. So do you have any suggestions for helping me navigate uh, yeah. those conversations. So it, that actually has a name now. We call that hypo or hyper fear syndrome. And there is a subset of people that I have, I have somebody that I work with now who his type one diabetes, his A1C has been 4.7. And so obviously he spends a lot of time in hypoglycemia. And the kind of things that he says are, you know, Susan, I feel like a single high permanently damages my body. He was one of these latter cases. So he was told that early in diagnosis, you know, that you have this great A1C. This is the way to avoid complications because he was only on, you know, he, he's, he still had functioning beta cells in his pancreas. And so for a long period of time, he only took uh, Lantus. And so during that time, he got all the wrong messages, which is, oh, yeah, this is great. You have a 5%. This is the way you avoid complications. So that really got ingrained in him. Now he also has, a, he's probably more propensity towards being a perfectionist anyway, and anxiety. And so you put that together with type one diabetes and it can be a disaster. And so hyper fear, um, it's very difficult to treat, but I, and with this guy, I tried everything. I treated it as like an addiction. I worked, tried to do um, phobia. Um, different treatment plans as a psychologist to address all these different problems. And it, it turned out that actually only behavioral interventions mattered. So um, while he had to address his underlying anxiety, I, I really, um, I really ha I had to over actually a period of a couple of years, really encourage him to get um, on an antidepressant to lower his sort of general anxiety level so that we could do more work behaviorally. Um, but stacking insulin. So we worked on like making rules that he would agree to, like don't take any more insulin until it's been three hours and, you know, things like that. So really working on stacking, um, he would really overcorrect for any hyperglycemia. So he would probably take twice or even three times the amount of insulin that he needed. And then he's like, well, I'd rather be low than high. Um, he lost his wife. He lost his job. Um, he had car accidents. He, I mean, he lost, there was nothing left to lose before he was willing to engage with treatment. Um, but the, some of the, like the key behaviors that got him into problems, those are the, those are the ones we worked on. And I kept him very, like three, you know, not overcorrecting for highs, not stacking your insulin, um, and working towards taking 
you know, the right amount of basal insulin too. He, that was another way, way he'd um, overcorrect, you know, so that he was starting his day at 70 or 75, something like that. Um, CGM can be a, a blessing and a curse for some of these folks because they use it as a way to micromanage their diabetes. So sometimes we make behavioral agreements around like how, how often to look at it. Uh, some of these folks look at it every 10 minutes. Um, that's that can be a problem too. Um, so, but yeah, that I and if you write to me, if you write to me, I'll send you a paper on this. Okay. Thank you, Shelley. This has been so great, and I was just curious. We have a patient in our clinic with type one who was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, mm -hmm. so his cognition is a little challenge for him. Then he had a stroke, and now he really wants to keep his A1C low before it was high. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he used to manage that um, low sugar with a reward in the form of Mountain Dew. Mm -hmm. So he would come to clinic with the two liter of Mountain <laughs> Dew. Yeah. And I can understand how a guy would like his soda. He doesn't eat. His BMI is very low. Um, we, we're working, working to get him to eat a little food, partnering with family, et cetera. But do you have tips for lower cognition and then also for that reward of the sugar high after mm -hmm. the sugar low? Does he wear CGM? Yeah. So I would, I would probably work with him on very small behaviors. So like, um, and again, you're trying to, you know, for him, his obstacles are going to be pretty big. So if you can just even remove some of the key obstacles, like maybe helping him understand the benefits of treating with something that's not so, um, well, first of all, you know, it's almost impossible to moderate how much glucose you're going to take in when you're low. So if he's starting with a two liter bottle of soda in front of him, your brain tells you get out fast. He's going to drink it until he feels better. And that's going to always be way more than you need. So like starting with like, are you willing to trade that soda with a different treat, like a snack sized bag of Skittles? Um, that's still a treat. He might still like that, but it's not going to be, you know, it'll be portion controlled. So sometimes it's about thinking about how can I trade that treat that's going to be a setup for him um, for something that's more, you know, that's going to serve him better in the long run. But I mean, you're going to, unfortunately, that's a sad, that's a very sad case that is full of obstacles so I would say pick pick like if you think through like his his uh, management the best you can understand him and pick on out like th two or three no more than that the key things that would help him be healthier or safer. Dr. Sanders and her residents are not taking enough credit for the fact that um, this patient actually used to be hospitalized about five times a year or more mm -hmm. and went, what, two and a half years without being hospitalized. That's great. So, so I think, I think the small steps are happening. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's great. That's uh, great. And, you know, he's, he, he's probably very afraid. So, I mean, having a conversation with him that just acknowledges that might help um, when you're, if you're negotiating a trade, the, so, the soda for something that um, something else, acknowledging that the reason he's probably doing that is because he's afraid, you know, so sitting with him in that tough feeling. Any other questions? You've given us so much to chew on here. Mm -hmm. This was excellent and it dovetails very nicely with a talk that we had just a couple of weeks ago by one of our colleagues on weight stigma mm -hmm. and, um, you know, trying to refocus our, our definitions of health. You know, like what does it actually mean to be healthy? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I am, I'm going to copy that slide that shows that having diabetes if all of the other risk factors are managed your health is as good as somebody who doesn't have diabetes that's phenomenal yeah and you can make that slide for overall mortality stroke and and they investigated all of that and some of the factors that really mattered were smoking 
an A1C and especially that combination. So again, and, and, and they also have in the study, that's why I encourage you to look at the study, they showed that each risk factor like came down. So even if, you know, you have a stubborn blood pressure or something, these other ones mattered. It's not like, uh, you know, you really, every, every one of those targets that you achieve matter. We have some added complications, which you can't fix probably, which is um, that Medicare and other insurances, um, they pay us differently mm -hmm. um, if we put uncontrolled on their problem list. Yeah, I, so. if you put diabetes with hyperglycemia, which is also a coding option, I wonder if it's different, if it's the same. Dr. Cho? <laughs> Is different. Is the same. Okay. So I, you know, I encourage you to think about ways that you encode it that are based in information, than a label that is judgy. You know, people have access to the EHRs now, and they look at them. And uh, we also do have the ability, which Dr. Chow, you can remind me again how to do it, where we can. Um, have the ICD-10 code, but we can change what the words are. So I know might... it's a lot of work right now. I mean, there are teams that uh, that are uh, um, in the American Diabetes Association trying to get these things addressed because we're trying to say what you do and say matters, and then you get paid less for saying it better. That ain't going to happen, <laughs> you know. Great. Thank you for that. Any other comments or questions? Excellent. Well, thanks for coming, everybody. As you're talking, my own voice thinks that I